I, I went to a multifamily conference and uh, they started talking about economies of scale and I think it's a little bit more diversified way of having a portfolio on the multifamily side. Hello, and thank you for joining us today on the Gentle Art of Crushing It show, where we focus on learning and sharing with our listeners all there is to know about how to create success in our lives. This show stands on the shoulders of giants. Our mission is to empower and inspire our listeners to create the life of their dreams whilst having a blast in the process. Let's celebrate life together. Welcome to the show. All right. Welcome back to the Gentle Art of Crushing It podcast. My name is Randy Smith, and I will be your host today on this Passive Investing Edition. Um, really excited to have a couple of guys on with us today that, um, you know, I'm getting to know much more over the last handful of months and excited about working with them in the future. But Justin Brito and uh, Jake Garcia are our guests today. Justin actually spent about 10 years as in research and as analysis with groups like IPA and Marcus and Millichap. He is the managing principal of Madison Communities. And then we also have Jake Garcia, who's also a managing principal of Madison Communities. And he has been in real estate going all the way back to 2007, quit his job in 2009. And the two of them have created a pretty significant portfolio, um, three development opportunities so far, about 50 doors and then about 600 doors in multifamily value add over the years. So Justin and Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on your show. Awesome. Well, why, yeah. don't we, uh, why don't we just jump right in? Jake, do you want to kick us off maybe and tell us a little bit about yourself and um, your journey and how you arrived here today? Sure. Happy to, and uh, thanks for having us today. So I uh, had a mentor uh, who he was mentoring me in life in general, but he basically bought a no money down real estate kit. And uh, long story short, he started doing deals and I was really interested in it. Uh, for one, I was miserable in a sales job I had that was basically telesales in a cubicle. Yeah. And, uh, Second, I always knew that real estate was a good way to build wealth. I just didn't really think I could do it. So anyway, he was uh, starting to do some single family homes, fix and flips. And one thing led to another. He just started mentoring me and coaching me. And uh, I got involved uh, as the market was kind of bottoming out after the great financial crisis and uh, got my start in single family. Uh, which was really good to me. I still like single family and own a portfolio, uh, but it really made a lot of sense to me to scale up, uh, transition into multifamily, and then ultimately get into a more passive role, uh, which, you know, for me, that's my goal now is to continue to grow, but be mostly passive. So okay, I'm married, uh, three kids, uh, live in Gilbert, Arizona. I've been here about 25 years. and. Um, Love it here. So awesome. Yeah, I I didn't realize you and I had the telesales background uh, commonality as well. So we um, I started in telesales as well. So that's that's interesting. I had no idea. That's good. And uh, Justin, what about yourself? Hey, I started in telesales as well. Uh, uh, there you first, go. All three of us got my first job in the sweatshop when I was fifteen uh, with one you know those old phones. And I just sat there and made calls. They paid. They paid cash every week. Um, it was a really good way to hone my uh, my sales skills. Really good. I did that for yeah. a couple of years actually. Um, but yeah, I like Jake's path, starting in single family and and then transitioning to multifamily. Um, kind of had a similar path. I was I was born and raised in Phoenix. Uh, I love Phoenix. I've seen it transition over the last you know thirty years into what it's become now, and it's it's a really cool city. Um, I think I'm fortunate to be to be born in Phoenix because it's a really good uh, real estate market. It's easy to get into sure. deals. They're not super expensive. Let's say like California, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a great market. But um, for me, my you know my my dad owned a construction company, so from a very early age, I was always interested in building. 
Um, so I'd go to work with him, help him out and, and learn about the trade, uh, understanding costs. And I can't build a house, but, uh, I can, I understand costs and what it costs to build one. Um, my mom, uh, always had her own business on the side. She worked a W2, but she always was, had a hustle on the side. So I just came from a, a family of entrepreneurs. And so from a young age, that's what I wanted to do. And, um, I would, you know, I was making money at a young age, selling candy at school, um, just doing different things, you know, sure. mowing lawns, finding ways to make money. And, uh, so that started from a very early age. Um, the, the I read rich dad, poor dad when like right out of high school, like probably a lot of people. And, uh, I started a fix and flip company with my dad, um, in okay. 2006, we had a couple successful uh, fix and flips, and then obviously the market crashed, and right at the end of two thousand seven. So I was dead in the water at that point, and then I stumbled across um, Trump's book, uh, "Art of the Deal," and it's you know once I read that, I, w I started to think bigger, and that's when I started to think about multifamily and, and larger larger deals. So I actually found a uh, a degree at ASU in real estate. And so I went back to school, got a degree in real estate, and I had a front row seat to the Great Recession uh, with my professor kind of explaining everything along the way of what was going on. Um, and once I graduated from there, I got an internship at, in 2010, no real estate companies were hiring, none. Sure, I, I, sure. I looked for six, seven months and had several interviews and finally landed this internship, making 10 bucks an hour. Uh, I grinded for yeah. about a year. I got passed up a couple times to get a full-time analyst position as a research, but I just kept grinding and yeah. uh, ended up finally transitioning into like an actual analyst in research, which was really cool because I got to write research reports for all the major um, uh, segments in real estate, like office, industrial, retail, and multifamily, and not only that, on a, on a national scale. Yeah. So it taught me how to write, how to write professional reports, learn about each sector in real estate, and then understand the economics behind it. Uh, sure. On top of what I learned in uh, when I in college, and uh, after a couple of years of that, I I met a broker, the top broker in our office at Marcus and Millichap, uh, and transitioned to to brokerage side, and you know learned how to underwrite deals. I wanted to find a skill that I can learn at that job that could help me make you know transition into my own business and and it was irreplaceable and to me underwriting was that skill so yeah. I, I taught myself how to underwrite eventually became an underwriter on that team um and worked there for uh 10 years <clears throat> and you know we did billions of dollars in real estate i had a front row seat to to some of the largest investors in the world um i was able to be on conference calls with these guys and hear how they analyze deals questions they asked how they you know, how they looked at deals to, to purchase, but also to sell. And um, that was a, I mean, that was, I, knowledge was irreplaceable. So I got uh, a bachelor from ASU and a master's working at that job in real estate. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's amazing. I, I can only imagine. Um, and who would have thought from like phone sales to working at Marcus and Middle Chap, underwriting, you know, 10, 50, 100, hundred million dollar deals, probably much bigger than that, I would suspect. So our largest deal there was, uh, um, my last year there was, uh, 2021 and we did, uh, two separate deals, portfolios that we sold and there were a billion dollars each. So it was, I got to Unreal. that and put the package together. It was, it was a great experience. Are you interested in real estate investing, but don't know where to get started or think you don't have the time or money? Are you stuck in your W-2 because the golden handcuffs make it hard to walk away? If this sounds like you, check out impactequity.net and schedule some time to talk with the founder, Randy Smith. Randy went from massive income to leaving his W-2 through passive income, and he can help you do the same. www.impactequity.net. Interesting. Yeah, so it's... Um... It's interesting that both you guys did some single family fix and flip. I think J Jake, you did quite a bit more um, on the single family space than what Justin did. But I think the the natural progression that I see folks go through is, you know, either they have a W two and then they start doing some type of single family and then they shift over to multifamily. Uh, Jake, maybe can you talk a little bit about um, 
why you transitioned into multifamily? Because it sounds like you had a rather large portfolio that seems like it was likely working very well. Why shift into multifamily when you had the single family space figured out? Well, uh, I'm a big proponent of continuing education and I part of a mastermind group, as you know, and I go to a lot yeah. of conferences and seminars and I, I went to a multifamily conference and uh, they started talking about economies of scale and um, just, you know, the, I think it's a little bit more diversified way of having a portfolio on the multifamily side. Uh, and to be honest, I kind of had the single family on autopilot and I like a, a challenge. I like to continue to grow and try new things. And um, also getting into a, the more affordable housing space. Uh, I didn't start at Class A apartments. You know, we started in Class C and Class B, and that's always been part of the vision: is to be in affordable housing and provide a nice, clean, safe place for people to stay, where you know they can be comfortable, and and it just makes you feel good to participate in that. So uh, there were several reasons, but uh, those are the main ones. That makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, I, I suspect too. In your single family, did, were you in the affordable housing space with single family, or were you dealing with nicer B plus A minus single families as well? Yeah, so I started out uh, just starter homes, basically. Uh, okay. I've also done uh, transitioned into different types of group homes, assisted living, um, but. I really like the starter home product as I started to scale and fix and flip. I was going to the move up home and nicer homes. And uh, I just never enjoyed that as much as I did the, you know, bread and butter three to 1500 yeah. square foot home that, you know, that in my eyes, there's always been very minimal risk investing in those types of houses, especially back then. That, that makes sense. I think back then, today, and into the future, we're going to have an affordable housing issue, which um, it sounds like the trend or the um, the position of your current projects are leaning towards that as well. So can you talk a little bit, maybe Justin, I know you and I have talked at length about this gray collar strategy, which I'd never heard until I met you. And I, I like that idea. So can you tell the audience what this gray collar strategy is? Yeah, it's a it's a great buzzword. Um, so for us, we we're, we look at the market, and everybody is building Class A and build to rent product. Uh, there's fifty thousand units in Phoenix um, that will be developed or completed this year and go next year, <clears throat> um, which is going to be the highest level of completions ever in Phoenix. Um, Phoenix has, historic, has historically been cyclical. It's a boom, It was a boomer bust market. It's kind of got away from that a little bit as the market is, as the economy is diversified. <clears throat> but we see uh, a niche in not building and, and getting away from building class A and, and build to rent and focusing on class B attainable housing. And what that means <clears throat> for us is um, instead of building, you know, having a thousand or 1200 square foot, two bedroom, two bath units, we can do a little bit smaller, 825 square foot, two bedroom, two baths. On the one bedrooms, it'll be 600 to 625 square feet. And that allows us to charge a cheaper rent. So class A, you know, goes from anywhere from two grand to up to 2,500 in certain areas in Phoenix for a two bedroom where we can build infill product, infill class B product uh, and charge, you know, $1,500, $1,600 a rent. And there is a lot more people that can afford that, which as you said, I call gray collar workers and gray collar, how that's defined for us is it's going to include some blue collar or some blue collar workers and all the way in the uh, up to white collar workers. So nurses, teachers, uh, back office employees include firefighters. So, tip, you know, our the demographic we target, you know, usually make forty to seventy thousand per year per take. So we just I call them. It's a it's a mix of white collar and some blue collar and everything in between. So I call it great. We call it great collar workers. 
I, I like it too, because it seems to me like a lot of this um, C plus B minus value add that we're seeing out there is is in that same price range. So, you know, a, a potential tenant that's looking at a, a B class that's or B minus that's under innovation um, and maybe moving towards a B plus, would you rather live in that? or a brand new unit that nobody else has ever lived in mm -hmm. for about the same price. And, you know, as a, as a past renter myself, I know what I would have chose. So um, love yeah. the strategy, love the strategy. So now Jake, you talked about um, affordable housing kind of being at the, at the core of a value for you personally and for the business as well. Um, wh where do you see that going? Do you see that, that issue continuing in the future? Do you see it, um, you know, solutions like this solving for this, or is this going to be a, an issue long term? Well, I mean, the average tenant that we deal with, you know, we still have them come into the office. We're sitting down at the desk discussing, you know, real life, real world situation with them as far as, you know, they're getting squeezed with inflation and you know, the cost of living continues to rise and real wages, you know, are not keeping up. And so uh, people are having a hard time uh, making ends meet. And so when you have a nice, clean, safe place that you can offer that is, you know, at the lower end of what the median is, you know, below median, I should say, uh, I just feel like it's a really safe place to invest and to you know, our vacancies are real low and uh, people stay a long time. If you, you know, we, we take really good care of our tenants. We take pride in, you know, the type of landlords that we are and uh, treat it no different than if we were leasing to a sibling or a family member as far as the way we take care of the units and maintenance requests and that sort of thing. So uh, I am bullish on the future of affordable housing, especially here in Phoenix. Uh, we have invested in some other states as well, but I just uh, love Arizona and uh, our vision for now is to continue to grow here and provide these valuable housing units. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, yeah, thank you for that. I, I would agree with you as well. I think affordable housing issues are here to stay. Um, you know, everything in the economy that I read about and, and podcasts I'm listening to and the news lines that we're seeing. Uh, it seems like this will continue to be an issue for probably decades to come. Certainly um, the three of our, our business careers most likely. So, well, let's maybe shift gears a little bit if we can. Um, you know, I, this trend from single family to value add to development. Um, historically, I've invested with operators that kind of do one thing and do one thing well, kind of cookie cutter over and over and over and over and over again, just simply, you know, simple, easy um, singles and doubles. Um, you guys have, I won't say jump from strategy to strategy, but there's been some progression that's occurred there. So can you talk through that, either one of you on um, basically the confidence of the, the investors that are working with you? seen you guys transition from strategies? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're mission driven, as we've already talked about. We want to <clears throat> help solve the affordability crisis in Phoenix. And secondly, we want to, uh, with our investors, make them money. And it, when we, some of our investors are, you know, our friends and family. Some of them are retired. And if we can find a, a solid, you know, investment and help grow their nest egg, then that makes us feel really good. That's first and foremost. And then other other investors are working a W two, and if we can help them retire earlier with a bigger nest egg, then that's you know that makes us feel really good as well. Um, so we started doing the value add back in two thousand nineteen. Um, everybody does value add. You go to seminars, you go to the, the these gurus, and they all preach value add. Um, which we love value add. It's a, it's a great product. It's a good product to get started in. <clears throat> and we've been very successful in the, um, in the deals we've done in the past. We've taken several deals full cycle. We caught the tailwind of the last, last bull market and did really well. Um, but what we're seeing right now for value add is a lot of price dislocation, meaning with interest rates rising so rapidly, um, cap rates are going up. 
um, and sellers from what we've seen uh, in Phoenix are reluctant to adjust their price enough to make up for that higher interest rate for us. We're not going to be able to hit our returns based on the pricing that we're seeing out there. For example, we've, I saw a couple of deals last week, value add deals. They, they were mostly, you know, both deals were mostly one bedrooms <clears throat> and the sellers were, you know, asking 160,000 a unit for mostly one bedroom unrenovated, which, you know, in 20, early 2022, late 2020 or in 2021, that would have been a great deal because they were in great areas. Um, but now with, you know, with, if we use bridge debt, for example, bridge debt's uh, 9% for the rate, interest rate. And then when you ref, if you refi it, you got to use, you know, a five and a half percent interest rate, at least maybe a six, because rates are currently at, I don't know, close to 7% right now. I know they just went down a little bit, but deals don't pencil at that. So especially those, like we would, we could have only offered 130,000 per unit for those deals to work and, and the seller wouldn't even respond to us. So we started to really look at development uh, in 2020 as a way to, uh, to create another vertical for us. You know, we, our verticals value add, the other vertical is class B attainable housing, uh, ground up development. And both of those verticals help us you know, solve the affordability crisis that's going on. But with development, we can, uh, if we, the key for us is to be able to get the land cheap enough. Uh, we have a great builder who, uh, who builds at a relatively low cost and we can build these, including the land, we can build these, these projects for anywhere from 170,000 a unit to upwards of 200,000 unit, maybe a little bit more, which is again, the same price as what those sellers were asking for that older value add, you know, projects. Uh, and plus you got to add renovation costs to the, to the seller's asking price, right? So you're in it to it for another 20 or 30,000. So we're looking at it as it's cheaper for us to build at the moment than it is to buy. Um, so that's an easy, that's an easy pitch to our investors. Uh, we have all the relationships with the lenders, with, you know, like I said, with the architects, with the GC, we have experience doing it. Uh, you know, we've seen, we've underwrote several development deals and most of them, a lot of them don't work because again, we're not charging a high rent like class A. So we need to be able to get in to the land at a low enough basis. So that's where the competitive advantages lies is everybody's doing value add or they want to do value add or they want to build class A or build to rent. And there's only a few companies doing this class B attainable housing at scale. And they're doing, you know, mostly 200 units plus. We're going to focus on sub 100 units, you know, hopefully 50 to 100 units. And there's not a lot of competition out there uh, for us to, uh, to do that, to go that I way. I love it. Yeah, yeah. no, I love it. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, at the end of the day, even a value add, a value add strategy is ultimately a big construction project yeah. if you're doing it right and you're renovating units consistently. So you're, you know, as the as the principal, you're managing that construction process or that that general contractor, essentially. So um, I think it makes a lot of sense to jump into that space. Value add, like if, if let's say you buy a hundred unit deal, it's going to take you probably two years to complete that business plan from start to finish where for us, we can do a, you know, build a 50 or, you know, 75 unit deal and it'll take roughly, you know, two years to complete once we get, get it entitled and that shovel ready. So the timelines, it's, it's probably a little bit longer with, you know, obviously with, with development, cause you got to go through the entitlement process, but the returns are going to be higher because it's a higher risk. Love it. Love it. So, yeah, and I, I suspect, Jake, you're not in this arena. You're not running into situations where you pull off some drywall and see some plumbing that you weren't expecting or all of the issues that you can run into in the renovation process. So this is clean, straight from the ground up. Um, generally, no surprises once you go vertical. Um, yeah, it sounds like it makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm curious why... Is, is it just the size of the developments that you're doing that drove you guys to infill or, you know, Jake, maybe, maybe you can talk through the strategy of infill versus looking at outlying areas. 
why why choose smaller pieces of land i guess well we were looking at several different options and uh the first development project that we uh started was basically shovel ready so somebody else had already taken it through the entitlement process uh, we felt like the deal had been de-risked for that reason uh, we had you know we'd already been getting our ducks in a row prior to that so it kind of just made sense uh, to take that one on and then uh, we started you know we're focused on the path of progress and where are the jobs going to be and you know, infill projects are just so much easier to lease up with the infrastructure already in place with, you know, roads. And I've looked at outlying areas. You can get better deals on dirt and everything. But uh, again, just part of our model is uh, we've always tried to be in the core, uh, you know, central core of the Phoenix area. And so there's not a lot of, a lot of land left. So. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And I, uh, you know, I've got these little pieces of land around my my neighborhood that I've been watching for years and, and thinking, man, that'd be a great spot for a strip of homes or maybe a, a self-storage facility or whatever. And those are starting to get infilled and developed at this point. I'm just kicking myself that I should have met guys like you years ago to be, be building in my own community. So it's neat to see things going up in, in your community. Definitely. Can I elaborate on Jake's answer as well? Which yeah, absolutely. Uh, a couple other things that we like about infill is again, there's fifty thousand units under construction right now. A lot of it's in the suburbs or in the outlying parts of Phoenix, Avondale, Goodyear, um, you know, uh, Happy Valley, uh, Chandler. It's, there's a ton of development out there. Um, on top of that, there's not as much infrastructure out there, like Jake said. So now it's going to add. The city will charge you something called an impact fee. Um, impact fees can add hundreds of thousands of dollars to your development project, to your construction budget. And that's for the city to use that money to help build out the infrastructure in those areas. Uh, another thing is that you've probably seen the uh, articles about the Phoenix water quote unquote shortage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're actually, it's actually tougher to, to get, if the, if the land doesn't have water hookups, which a lot of those, that stuff way out in the suburbs or outlying, uh, outlying parts of Phoenix don't have, it's harder to get water and get the project approved. So in, in the, within Phoenix, let's call it within the 101 mostly, um, there, that's not, there's no, that's not a challenge. Water's already there and we don't face any, any risk with that. And then lastly, we don't want people to be priced out of, you know, infill, you know, within the city of Phoenix be priced out. Cause again, no, everyone, everyone building within the city of Phoenix, like within infill projects is mostly nicer built to rent or class A. So rents are going to be high. So if we can find, if we can find, you know, some, some dirt and build these class B attainable housing units uh, within the infill parts of Phoenix, then, that's that's part of our thesis. We want to be able. We don't want people priced out of neighborhoods. So. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. You, they're they're nice, beautiful homes where they work, near they work, near where they work, and near all the amenities that they're looking for. So you're yeah, you're insulated because that's where all the jobs are. You know, a lot of the jobs. Right. So right, right. No, I love it. Very good. So well, let's let's shift a little bit if we can, because this is. I mean, this podcast is geared towards the newer, newer passive investor. Um, We've focused primarily on value add up to this point, and a lot of the operators we work with, they start paying distributions right from the beginning through different strategies and and manufacturing um, distributions early on, essentially. So can we talk about, maybe not, uh, let, let's talk about maybe one of your, your historical deals that you did. Like, what does the cash flow look like? What do the returns look like? What kind of expectations can an investor have if they're dealing with you guys in Madison communities? It's a great question. So <clears throat> you're talking about like past deals on for development? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we, uh, we're about to finish a project um, in the end of December. This one yeah. was our one of our first ones. It's uh, This one's a build to rent project. We did, this was the first piece of land we bought. Uh, or second piece, sorry. Um, and it's 18 built to rent townhomes. <clears throat> it's an Encanto district. So it's going to be 19th Avenue and Thomas. 
which is near uh, Central Phoenix, downtown, uh, St. Joseph's Hospital. So there's a lot of lot of jobs around there. Um, that that project has gone really smooth. Um, we haven't had any cost overruns. We're actually uh, about five percent under budget, uh, which is pretty historical considering construction costs have gone up over the last sure sure Um, that's all we've seen in the headlines for the last what four years so um yeah so we our builder was able to keep costs down and come in under budget um and so on that deal with investors we're going to look we actually listed it on market it's on market right now um market's uh, you know dislocated so i don't know if we'll go to price but um If we sell it now and get the price that we're asking, investors can make uh, close to a 60% return on that project if we get the price. Um, so that's going to be an IRR of, you know, in a two-year period of, you know, 22%. Wow. Um, which uh, if we if the market was still hot and we got the price that we originally underwrote in the re- original business plan, then investors would have doubled their money. But obviously the market yeah. to come down but if we can still generate a 60 percent return in this market that's a that's a win for us um on future deals where we typically look to make investors at least on development uh, a 20 percent irr over a three-year period uh, which value add what i'm seeing right now with uh, other sponsors they're at like probably anywhere from a 15 to a 17 percent irr in a three to five year period. So developments, <clears throat> development should always offer a higher return versus uh, value add just because it's higher risk. So you're getting rewarded for that risk you take on. Okay. And is there, are there any depreciation benefits with development or? So if, if we don't sell this uh, build to rent project, um, we can do a cost seg on it and, and get depreciation that way. But okay. if we sell it, then there's no depreciation that we can capture on that. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So that makes sense. And then, um, so to answer your question on the cash flow, there is really no cash flow while you're building, obviously. Um, but you, right. can, offer, you can offer investors a, a 7% pref, which they accumulate while the project is being built. And that'll be paid first prior okay. to, you know, the promoter, the splits kicking in. So. Okay. Well, and I'm, I'm curious then. So, you know, you always hear in real estate, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, or you hear that from a lot of folks anyways. Um, it sounds like this is really for your your growth or your wealth generating passive investors. Would you agree with that? Or do you think by diversification, you can essentially create cash flow by investing in multiple deals like this, like almost that dollar cost averaging process of investing in deals? Jake, any thoughts on that? or? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I typically have different buckets that I invest out of. Okay. Uh, I love cash flow, but I think there's other ways to. It, the reality is, I, I don't really need the cash flow right now. I have other sources of income. I'm looking more to the future and legacy and building wealth. Uh, also, yeah. uh, taxes, right, are a, a big mm-hmm. issue. And so, uh, Cash flow is not the most tax efficient way to invest and grow wealth, in my opinion. Okay. Although it's nice to go out to the mailbox and have those checks there. So that's why sure. I try and have, you know, a few projects that are cash flow, a few that are appreciation plays. Sometimes yep. you need a depreciation play, right? So sprinkle yep. a couple of those in and, you know, you're talking about the returns on these projects. And one of the things that I like is the return to the community. Like I was over in Encanto uh, just a few days ago. And, you know, when we started, here's this dirt lot. You you know what I'm talking about? There's some bushes there. There's trash underneath. There's people kind of wandering around eating, and it's just unsightly. And now this beautiful new building, you know, these aren't uh, dumpy apartments. These are fancy looking, you know, built to rent townhouses with garages and it, I mean it just it raises the watermark on the whole neighborhood and the, the neighbors are happy and you know, they're coming over asking hey can we see and I mean it just yeah. it's warm and fuzzy where you know there's a story behind each deal 
And I really like the story. And as you show up there and see yeah. the progress, just to see something that we created come out of the ground, it's yeah. just really satisfying. So the yeah. money is nice. I love that. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and thank you for that answer, too. I think, you know, as investors, we get hung up in IRRs and equity multiples and tax benefits. And and we don't always take a look at the at the bigger picture and how we're impacting the communities. And I would agree. I mean, I drove by that property that you're talking about as well. And it's uh, yeah, it's exciting to see. That was probably a lot that had some grocery carts in it. You know, had, uh, you know, some some folks uh, on a late Saturday night hanging out doing things. God only knows what, but uh, it's going to be a beautiful home. And like all of those, all of those houses around it, you've got to just assume that they're just loving what you're bringing to their community yeah. because it's going to it's going to increase the value of their homes and uh, increase the safety potentially and really just kind of take everything up a notch. So, um Justin, it looks like you might have a couple of thoughts on that as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm finding that that Justin will always have a couple of extra thoughts uh, with Jake shares. So that's good. I just love it's a great estate. partnership there. I love real estate. I love talking about it. It's uh, it gets, I get excited. Um, Jake yeah. knows that. Um, but to answer your question on the cash flow part, so we have, like I said before, we have two verticals: the value add and. Uh, the development. So the value add will generate cash flow. Um, it's just on pause right now because of where pricing is and interest rates are. Uh, we will get back into it probably in the second half of next year. Uh, I'm hearing a lot of rumblings from lenders, brokers that I've met uh, where they're starting to do a lot of BOEs for um, for banks and, and lenders and they're going to start. And what, is, what is that? Can you share with the audience? Um, so broker opinion of value. So they're yep. So lenders are looking at deals that are being watch list uh, or aren't achieving the debt coverage ratio, which is uh, a metric the bank uses to track how the property is operating and if it can uh, pay its debt service. So a, a 1.0 debt service means a property's breaking even after it pays its debt service. So if it's generating a 0.8 debt service, then it's generating negative cash flow and the sponsor needs to come out of pocket and pay that with reserves or whatever, whatever, whatever means they use. Uh, so there's a lot of deals that are not hitting that debt coverage ratio. And these lenders are reaching out to brokerage firms and having them, you know, underwrite the deals and create a broker opinion of value to let the lenders know what are these deals worth when they, if they have to take them back. And a lot of times uh, these deals aren't even worth the loan amount that, is on the property. So it starts seeing some distressed deals hit the market in the next three to six months from what I'm hearing. I don't know for sure, but once that happens, we can, we'll jump back in and that's a vertical that we'll be able to offer, uh, you know, distribute cash flow. And then even on our development deals, like if we always look to sell if the market's in the right place, but if it's not in the right place, we'll, we'll refinance it just like we would do on a value add deal that we bought. We'll be able to take out, you know, probably, 30% of the initial equity that we raised and give it back to investors. And then we can cash flow for the next two or three years and uh, distribute cash flow to investors. But on the development, we'll have such a, you know, like we have a, a Deer Valley project that we're doing 30 units. It's near the Taiwan semiconductor plant. Uh, it's attainable class B housing. And we'll break ground on that in the, uh, in the first quarter of next year. We're just about done getting it entitled and um, we'll do a, a 65% loan to cost uh, on the project. So the loan amount was is only like on a per unit basis will only be about 110,000 per unit for the loan amount. So that significantly lowers our, you know, our risk if we have to refinance it and price, you know, let's just say prices drop even more in two years when we're done. Like we, we such a low, uh, loan on that, that it makes it easier to refinance. It, it, it reduces our risk quite a bit. Love it. Love it. Yeah, very good. So you guys, and coming from your background, Justin, I know you're watching this stuff daily. Um, you're seeing everything going on and you're kind of reanalyzing your entire portfolio on what's best for your investors. So um, those, those 10 to 12 years you spend in that space, I'm sure will will pay dividends for years and years for your investors. Yeah. So Thank you. Yeah. 
Well, let's, um, gosh, we've already spent almost 40 minutes together here. Why don't we, if we can, shift over into some of these quicker questions that I like to ask everybody. Um, and, and I'd love to hear both your guys' answers. It, it'll take a little bit of time, but I'd love to hear your guys' answers on this. You both have very um, different experiences in this space. So I think I think that can add some value to the to the listeners. So looking back at where you are today versus where you started, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, um, are there any specific learnings throughout that period that you wish you knew early on that could have impacted where you are today? And we'll go with uh, Jake first, if okay. we can. For me, I wish I would have leveraged technology sooner. Okay. Um, and also uh, having multiple mentors, you know, not trying to reinvent the wheel, but go find somebody who's doing exactly what you're looking to do. Yeah. And just copy and paste and follow them around, do whatever you got to do to figure out how and, and what they're doing and uh, get you on the fast track. Love it. Successfully leaves clues, as they say, right? Exactly. Awesome. Justin, how about yourself? Uh, for me, I wish I would have got a mentor like Jake. I looked for one. They're good mentors are hard to find um, without like, okay. a mastermind and paying. But, you know, having somebody that has accomplished what I want to do and being able to call them and, you know, pick their brain, ask some questions and get feedback from them, their guidance is that's that's huge. That's it's irreplaceable. Um, I had a lot of people that I could talk to along the way, <clears throat> but I didn't have like a, a true mentor I could in the real estate space I could call and uh, just pick their brain. Um, another thing would be don't let analysis paralysis and fear hold you back. Right? Like there's only like, again, I was in real estate for, you know, seven years prior before I bought my first deal. I was trying to master underwriting uh, I wanted to have all this knowledge before I jumped in, which is important to have knowledge, right? But knowledge only gets you so far. It's when I put it into practical application, take that knowledge and apply it to projects and deals, then that's when I gain the, the wisdom and I overcome that fear. That's when uh, it, it's so easy to let fear hold you back. You know, you have all this knowledge, but you're afraid to jump in. You just, you just got to jump in at some point and just, you know, when you're, there's never a perfect time. Um, I I don't think I've ever heard an investor say, I wish I would have waited longer to yeah. start investing in real estate. Myself, I, I sat on the sidelines for probably five or six years. I missed a couple of cycles there. And if yeah. you think about yes. you know, the power of doubling capital every three to five years, holy yeah. cow, that, that can have a big impact. So The other point to that is don't get FOMO. Like in 2021, early 2022, everybody's doing deals. Everyone's talking about real estate. And you just you want to keep up with the with the next person doing all these deals, and it's really easy to get emotional and to just want to do deals to keep up and to stay afloat, which is something we learned. Like we bought a couple of deals last year that maybe we shouldn't have bought, but it's a learning experience. And so just don't get emotional. Stick to stick to the fundamentals of the underwriting. Don't do get don't be too aggressive. Stay conservative. You know, go for singles and doubles, like you said prior. And the home runs will come will come along. They're just not like in 2021, everybody hit a home run. Everybody, if they sold in 20, early 2022. Um, and that's just not realistic. Just got to stick to the fundamentals. Yep. Love it. Stick to your buy box uh, yeah. no matter what. I love it. Very good. Okay. So speaking of mentorships and advice, is there a particular educational resource or podcast or book that you might suggest to the audience that's trying to learn more about passive investing or investing in real estate? Absolutely. Um, I mean, honestly, for me, the the number one tool I use right now is LinkedIn. Like if you okay. follow if you follow a lot of people on LinkedIn in the real estate space, like at these big companies, they they give out a lot of knowledge for free, like on these posts. Absolutely. I, that's probably the first thing I do when I wake up is go on LinkedIn, scroll through all these posts and, and just read about different scenarios, whether it's from a lender, a broker, a developer, or someone in the value add sure. all sure. somebody telling a story and we're talking about a mistake. So that's that's been huge for me lately. Um, follow Jay Parsons. Jay Parsons is uh, with yep. our real page talks a lot about the operations of um, properties and rent growth, everything. Yeah. Um, CCIM can teach you how to underwrite. That's a website you can okay. go on to, you can pay to 
learn how to underwrite. It's uh, they offer a certification, which is, I think it's pretty respected in the real estate world. Um, ULI, ASRIA, <clears throat> and then another thing I'm really watching right now that help, helps educate me on interest rates is the, um, it's a website called the CME FedWatch. Yeah. Um, and that takes all that looks at futures of the bond market, the derivatives and, and, and kind of gives you a, a percentage of if the Fed's going to raise rates, you know, yep. over the next year. So in December, the CME FedWatch is saying there's a 90 over a 95 percent chance the Fed's going to keep rates the same. And then starting in <clears throat> in March. It starts to figure in that feds will start cutting rates. You know, it was like right. a 20% or a, I don't know, 15% 30. or 30 or something, but it 30 goes yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. It just shows each, each fed meeting and the probability of if they're going to leave rates the same, increase them or decrease them, which that's awesome. huge. Um, yeah. Great resources. I love it. I like that you mentioned Jay, um, Jay Parsons as well. I follow him and I, I watch the CMN FedWatch, CME FedWatch as well. Yeah. Very cool. As far as podcasts, I would say, listen to yours. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right, Jake, how about yourself? I consume a lot of content. Um, I like listening to different multifamily operators that have been through a couple of cycles. People that, um, you know, Ken McElroy would be an example of that. He's a local guy that straight shooter. Uh, but I like when, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. And there are a lot of pitfalls to avoid and, and the market is so dynamic and changes so quickly that, you know, staying up uh, on, you know, current events and, you know, what operators are doing to pivot and what's going on with rents and concessions and um, all that stuff. It's just so important to keep my head in the game. And I, I really enjoy it too. I've also uh, started going back and looking at uh, books you know, back in the 80s, what did they do when rates were high? How did they make deals pencil? You know, what kind of seller financing was uh, and structured and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's kind of what I'm doing. Very cool. Now. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's a good idea. I saw an article this last week that is comparing today's environment to where we were back in the early 80s. Uh, with interest rates and some of the trends we might expect to see from that. And it, it was amazing. Some of the, um, just the bullet points, like how similar the two different markets are then and today. So very neat. Yeah. Well, good. Um, here, here's one that's kind of fun. Um, is there a recent bucket list item you've checked off your list or one you're planning to in the near future? Uh, yeah, absolutely. For me, it was going to a, a Diamondbacks World Series game. Um, that oh, was, did you guys go? Awesome. Yeah, Jake and I yeah. went and, uh, with his family and my fiance, And that it's just something I wanted to do since I was a little kid. And in 2001, when they went and won, yeah. I was 19 and broke. So I couldn't afford yeah. a ticket. So this is kind of full circle for me. Now, you know, yeah. I, I was able to go to a game and uh despite losing and watching them lose the world series it was <laughs> sure breaking but uh that's that, yeah that was great yeah very cool i was at one of the nlcs games and it was the most exciting sporting event i've ever been into in my entire life it was amazing so yeah very cool jake how about yourself yeah so i always had on my bucket list you know walking my daughter down the aisle and what that would be like um i recently just dropped her off at college and i didn't really know what a powerful experience that was going to be and just yeah. how it's going to make me feel. Uh, I road tripped with her one-on-one -on -one to Texas to drop her off. And then just the whole experience of the weekend, the dropping her off, the getting back in the car and driving away. I mean, it was just, Oh, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Highlight one of the highlights of my life, just being able to participate in that. Very cool. Very cool. Well, uh, one final question here before we wrap up, but uh, if you guys had $100,000 to invest today and you couldn't invest in one of your own deals, what would you invest in? Well, I just uh, invested in a mobile home park uh, of an operator I know. I uh, also just invested in a fix and flip. Uh, so those are, there's still a lot of opportunities out there. Uh, All right. Very good. Very good. So at this current moment, I would um, probably put
put it in the bank and get 5% interest, which is completely risk-free because I think uh, cash is king at the moment and wait for some opportunities to come up in the next three to six months. I love it. I've, I've heard that response a lot from folks. So, um, yeah, we, oddly enough, we're going to be uh, sharing an opportunity with our investors that will offer about double of what the uh, high yield savings accounts are offering and about 90 day liquid as well. So I, I hear you on that one. So, well, very good. Well, uh, we already talked, I think you mentioned uh, LinkedIn, Justin, I believe is probably the best way to reach you, but is there, what's the best way to find out more about Madison communities? So we're actually creating a website right now, uh, should be done in maybe the next two to three weeks. So it'll be okay. madisoncommunitiesaz.com. Um, and that'll show everything about our company. Um, we got a pitch deck that we can, uh, that will be on there um, as well. And then, yeah, you can always email us and ask us questions. Very good. Very yeah. good. And anything else either you would like to share with the audience before we wrap it up? Well, if anybody ever wants to talk shop with me, I'm, uh, I like talking on the phone. You can call me anytime. I uh, like to share ideas and see what other people are doing too. So my number is 480-241-2601. Love it. Love it. Thank you, Jake. Yeah, yeah same. I love talking real estate. I'm here to uh, add value back to your audience. If we can, if I can answer any questions or talk about underwriting, deals, anything, people can absolutely call me at 480-290-8005. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Justin and Jake, thank you guys so much for being on the show. I think you brought a ton of value, very unique perspective that we've not heard on this podcast yet. So thank you guys for being on the show. I, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for yeah, having us. Pleasure. All right. Well, very good. So to uh, the audience, as always, thank you for joining us today. And as always, I want to continue, encourage you to continue your education process in passive investing. But more importantly than that, make the decision to take some action and find your first passive investment opportunity. Experience shows that once you do, you're going to wish you had started sooner and you'll be one step closer to decreasing your dependence on your W-2. So uh, be sure to join us again next Thursday. We'll have another outstanding episode. And thank you all for joining us here today. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of The Gentle Art of Crushing It. It was an amazing episode. We know we sure learned a lot, and we hope you did as well. We want to take a second and thank you so much for viewing or listening to this episode. And please just know that we only ask for one favor, and that is to make this life magnificent. Thank you, and have a wonderful day.